Chapter Four of Olive. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Olive by Dinah Maria Craik. Chapter Four. The fourth year of Captain Rothsay's absence passed, not without anxiety, for it was wartime, and his letters were frequently interrupted. At first, whenever this happened, his wife fretted extremely. Fretted is the right word, for it was more a fitful chafing than a positive grief. Sibylla knew not the sense of deep sorrow. Her nature resembled one of those sunny climes where even the rains are dews. So, after a few disappointments, she composed herself to the certainty that nothing would happen amiss to her Angus, and she determined never to expect a letter until she received it, and not to look for him at all until he wrote her word that he was coming. He was sure to do what was right, and to return to his dearly loved wife as soon as ever he could. And, though scarce acknowledging the fact to herself, her husband's return involved such a humiliating explanation of truth concealed, if not of positive falsehood, that Sibylla dared not even think of it. Whenever the long-parted wife mused on the joy of meeting, of looking once more into the beloved face, and being lifted up like a child to cling round his neck with her fairy arms, for Angus was a very giant to her, then there seemed to rise between them the phantom of the pale, deformed child. To drown these fancies, Sibylla rushed into every amusement which her secluded life afforded. At last she resolved on an exploit at which Elsbee looked aghast, and which made the quiet Mrs. Johnson shake her head—an evening party, nay, even a dance, at her own home. "'It will never do for the people here. They're uncogude,' said the doctor's English wife, who had imbibed a few Scottish prejudices by a residence of thirty years. "'Nobody ever dances in Stirling. Then I'll teach them," cried the lively Mrs. Rothsay. I long to show them a quadrille, even that new dance that all the world is shocked at. Oh, I should dearly like a waltz. Mrs. Jacob Johnson was scandalized at first, but there was something in Sibylla to which she could not say nay. Nobody ever could. The matter was decided by Mrs. Rothsay's having her own way, except with regard to the waltz, which her friend staunchly resisted. Elsby, too, interfered as long as she could. But her heart was just now full of anxiety about her nursling, who seemed to grow more delicate every year. Day after day the faithful nurse might have been seen trudging across the country, carrying little Olive in her arms, to strengthen the child with the healing springs of Bridge of Allen, and invigorate her weak frame with the fresh mountain air, the heather breath of beautiful Ben Letty. Among these influences did Olive's childhood dawn, so that in after-life they never faded from her. Elsbee scarcely thought again about the gay party, until when she came in one evening, and was undressing the sleepy little girl in the dusk, a vision appeared at the nursery door. It quite startled the old Scotswoman at first, it looked so like a fairy apparition, all in white, with a green coronet. She hardly could believe that it was her young mistress. "'Eh, Mrs. Rothsay, you're no going to show yourself in such a dress?' she cried, regarding with horror the gleaming bare arms, the lovely neck and the tiny white-sandaled feet, which the short and airy robe exhibited in all their perfection. "'Indeed but I am, and tis quite a treat to wear a ball-dress. I that have been smothered up in all sorts of ugly costume for nearly five years. And see my jewels! Why, Elsby, this pearl-set has only beheld the light once since I was married, so beautiful as it is, and Angus's gift, too.' "'Do not say that name!' cried Elsby driven to a burst of not very respectful reproach. "'I marvel you dar speak of Captain Angus, and ye with your havers and your jigs, while your husband's far away, and your bairn's sick. 
"'It's for nae good, I tell ye, Mrs. Rothsey.' Sibylla had looked a little subdued at the allusion to her husband, but the moment Elsby mentioned the little Olive, her manner changed. "'You are always blaming me about the child, and I will not bear it. She is quite well. Are you not, baby?' The mother never would call her Olive. A feeble, trembling voice answered from the little bed. "'Yes, please, mamma. "'There, you hear, Elsby. Now don't torment me any more about her, but I must go downstairs.' She danced across the room in a graceful waltzing step, held out her hand towards the child, and touched one so tiny, cold, and damp that she felt half inclined to take and warm it in her own. But Elsby's hawk eyes were watching her, and she was ashamed. So she only said, "'Good night, baby,' and danced back again, out through the open door. For hours Elsby sat in the dark room beside the bed of the little child, who lay murmuring, sometimes moaning in her sleep. She never did moan but in her sleep, poor innocent. The sound of music and dancing rose up from below, and then Mrs. Rothsay's singing. "'Ye better be hushin' your queer wee bairn here, ye heartless woman,' muttered Elsby, who grew daily more jealous over the forsaken child, now the very darling of her old age. She knew not that her love for Olive, and its open tokens shown by reproaches to Olive's mother, were sure to suppress any dawning tenderness that might be awakened in Mrs. Rothsay's bosom. It had not done so yet, for many a time during the dance and song did the touch of that little cold hand haunt the young mother, rousing a feeling akin to remorse. But she threw it off again and again, and entered with the gaiety of her nature into all the evening's pleasure. Her enjoyment was at its height, when an old acquaintance just discovered, an English officer quartered at the castle, proposed a waltz. Before she had time to say yes or no, the music struck up one of those enchanting waltz measures which to all true lovers of dancing are as irresistible as Maurice Connor's wonderful tune. Sibylla felt again the same blithe young creature of sixteen, who had led the revels at her first ball, dancing into the heart of one old colonel, six ensigns, a doctor, a lawyer, and of Angus Rothsay. There was no resisting the impulse. In a moment she was whirling away. In the midst of the dizzy round the door opened, and like some evil spectre in stalked Elsby Murray. Never was there such an uncouth apparition seen in a ballroom. Her grey petticoat exhibited her bare feet. Her short upper gown, that graceful and picturesque attire of the Scottish peasantry, was thrown carelessly over her shoulders. Her mutch was put on awry, and from under its immense border her face appeared, as white almost as the cap itself. She walked right into the centre of the floor, laid her heavy hand on Sibylla's shoulder, and said, "'Mrs. Rothsay, your husband's come.' The young wife stood one moment transfixed. She turned pale, afterwards crimson, and then, uttering a cry of joy, sprang to the door, sprang into her husband's arms. Dazzled with the light, the traveller resisted not, while Elsby half led, half dragged him, still clasping his wife, into a little room close by, when she shut the door and left them. Then she burst in once more among the astonished guests. "'Ye may gang your gate, ye heathens! Away wi' ye, for Captain Rothsay's come hame!' Sibylla and her husband stood face to face in the little gloomy room, lighted only by a solitary candle. At first she clung about him so closely that he could not see her face, though he felt her tears falling and her little heart beating against his own. He knew it was all for joy, but he was strangely bewildered by the scene which had flashed for a minute before his eyes while standing at the door of the room. 
After a while he drew his wife to the light and held her out at arm's length to look at her. Then for the first time she remembered all. Trembling, blushing scarlet over face and neck, she perceived her husband's eyes rest on her glittering dress. He regarded her fixedly from head to foot. She felt his expression change from joy to uneasy wonder, from love to sternness, and then he wore a strange cold look, such a one as she had never beheld in him before. So, the young lady I saw whirling madly in some man's arms, was you, Sibylla, was my wife. As Captain Rothsay spoke, Sibylla distinguished in his voice a new tone, echoing the strange coldness in his eyes. She sprang to his neck, weeping now for grief and alarm as she had before wept for joy. She prayed him to forgive her, told him with a sincerity that none could doubt, how rejoiced she was at his coming and how dearly she loved him, now and ever. He kissed her at her passionate entreaty, said he had nothing to blame, suffered her caresses patiently, but the impression was given, the deed was done. While he lived Captain Rothsay never forgot that night, nor did Sibylla, for then she had first seen that cold, stern look and heard that altered tone. How many times was it to haunt her afterwards? End of chapter 4